Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For over 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of Acadian identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. I was never downhearted about speaking French. Uh, we were all Cajuns alike in those days. That was Roy Ormentar from a 2004 interview at his home in New Iberia, Louisiana. Roy was part of a small group of Cajuns recruited by the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, because they spoke French and because the OSS needed volunteers with special aptitudes to drop behind enemy lines and work closely with French resistance groups to harass and ambush German units during the critical battle for France in 1944. Roy was part of a special forces commando unit known as an operational group. These OGs, as they were called, were tasked with parachuting into enemy-held territory to rendezvous with the French underground and attack German troop movements with light weapons and explosives. These tough hombres were well-trained in the dark arts of espionage and they were proficient at demolition work. Roy's unit was codenamed Peg and his best friend in the unit was a Cajun named Claude Galley from the Bayou community of Montague in Lower Terrebonne Parish, just south of Homa. Roy and Claude met at a training camp and volunteered together for the OSS. Although, at the time, both recruits were unaware of the circumstances surrounding this new secret organization and its purpose. All they knew was that the job required volunteers who spoke a foreign language and who would jump out of an airplane. It all sounded like high adventure to these young Cajuns, and the job paid $50 extra a month. Little did they know that they would end up training in North Africa in preparation for a parachute mission deep into the mountains of southern France in August of 1944. Andrew Roy Armentar grew up in a French-speaking community in Abbeville, Louisiana, and had to learn English in school the hard way. The teachers forced him to learn to speak English and punished him when he failed to do so. We spoke French all our lives. We didn't speak any English at home at all. Uh, in fact, I went to school and uh, I was sent back because I was a French-speaking student mostly. Of course, I was a little young too, but uh, mostly because we spoke French. We spoke French at home all the time. They was trying to do away, I guess, with the French-speaking uh, people, uh, and uh, uh, I was sent back three times. I went one day, and they sent me back during the morning. Mother sent me back the next morning, and then they sent me back home. Then the third time I went, they finally accepted me because I was going to continue going until they took me. I knew a little English, yes but uh, mostly French. We talk French all the time. Yes. Everybody around us was all French. We spoke French all our 
at the dinner table or in the yards, and, and our neighbors were all French-speaking people. Uh, but the, the school that I attended, uh, most, I would say 80% of the people that went to school, or the boys and the girls, were all French-speaking people. You know, they were all Cajun. You know, there was very few that didn't know any French. And as the years progressed, we learned English because we had to. And then we tried to teach it to our parents, you know. I think uh, once you know French, it stays with you all the time. Of course, we speak a different language than the French-speaking people in in, in France mm -hmm. and uh, North Africa, as far as that goes. It's very close now. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, they speak what, what we call a patois, mm -hmm. which is a... a a derivative from the French language, but they add words to it, like we add words over here, you know. A lot of our French here has got a lot of English in it. But the French we spoke in, in Abbeville when I was a young boy, uh, lots, oh, the majority of it when I was in France was just about on the same level. I was in the central part of France, and we talked about the same a few words were different because, uh, because of locale, you know. In 1943, Roy volunteered for the Army. He was sent to training in North Carolina. There, he met Claude Galley. The two became fast friends and ultimately joined the Special Forces together. I was drafted in the regular infantry division, the 78th Division. I was, I was brought to North Carolina, from Durham, North Carolina, and we spent... I'm not sure how long, I don't remember the date. But one day, uh, Roy and I were together out there. He had drafted at the same time I did. And we met over there. And we got to be good up. And we were together plenty. So one afternoon, uh, evening, after we ate supper, we passed by a bulletin board. And we see a note on that said that uh, the army was looking for guys to speak different language. They didn't say what language, only said different language. So he looked at me, I looked at him, I said, me, I'm interested because I didn't like it where I was. Regular infantry, I had to carry a 30 caliber machine gun every time we go out. And that weighed something like 40 pounds. I had to carry that plus, plus, plus a full field pack. And uh, I had guys tired of that, so I told Roy, I said, I'm interested. I said, let's go check on that. Well, it was on a bulletin board uh, that they, uh, they was going to do something with, uh, they wanted volunteers that spoke French. So we that spoke French all went to this, I guess you could call it a meeting, like in a big auditorium. And uh, they spoke to us and told us what we was going to have to do, we was going to have to, it asked us a lot of questions, whether we would like to jump out of a plane. Yeah, one of them was Claude Galley, uh, the other was uh, Nolan Fricky. Uh, Alamo, I don't remember his first name. Well, Vier was, yeah, well, Vier, now he was not a, a Cajun. Vier, uh, Vieux was from uh, the northern part of the state, around uh, uh, Maine. They had a billy doe also that was from that section. Mm -hmm. 
around in the Nova Scotia and in that section. Uh, but we all spoke French, and we all spoke the same, more or less the same French, same patois, you know. So we got along real well, uh, and it was real nice. All they wanted to do was, uh, uh, they wanted to know if you wanted to do ha hazardous duty. And, and uh, uh, it was work that you would have to jump into uh, certain areas. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell us any areas, what areas, because uh, then they would be telling something about what's going to happen in, in France or, or wherever, in Italy or Greece or whatever uh, section you was going to jump into. So really, they just gave us an idea. You want to join, fine. You don't want to join. It wasn't compulsory. It was just something on a voluntary basis. Beginning in the fall of 1943, Roy and Claude and hundreds of other volunteers went to Washington, D.C. for OSS training. The instructors emphasized map reading, night reconnaissance, and demolitions. The new agents soon became proficient in the use of explosives and weapons, knife fighting, hand-to-hand -hand combat, sabotage, and related espionage tactics. They even learned Kung Fu. Claude, who grew up down the bayous of Terrebonne Parish, excelled in compass and map interpretation, which earned him a promotion. The training in D.C., the training for compass and map, uh, the training to drop us in the mountain, find your way back to the camp. Did I tell you what asthma it was? Why would you accomplish? You could do that, you know. And I was pretty good, yeah, good, pretty good at it. Uh, matter of fact, after all, uh, the company commander was a, uh, a captain. He called me in the office. He said, sit down, Galley. So I sat down. I said, what can I do for you, Captain? He said, I want to give you a raise. I said, what do you mean, a raise? He said, I want to make you a sergeant. And uh, tech sergeant, they call it. It was a staff sergeant with a T in it. So. I said, Captain, I said, I don't know if I can handle that. Why? I said, I don't have that much education. He said, I've been watching you. He said, I want you to take it, and if you get any problem at all, any kind of problem at all, come to me with it. I took it. That was an honor for me. And well, I went overseas with that. We went to Africa. We were all, uh, we were assigned what they call a section. There was 15, uh, uh, we were, let's see, that was, 15 in our section and then 30 all together in the section. But we stayed together as a group. We went to Algiers as a group. We jumped into France as a group. We all stayed together. We, we were a special battalion. And uh, they called us the Special Reconnaissance Battalion. We knew that we was OSS, but we did Officer Strategic yeah. Service. But, I mean, it didn't really mean anything to us. Uh, we were briefed uh, in, uh, in Algiers, in North Africa. We went on maneuvers there with the French Foreign Legion uh, up in the Atlas Mountains. And we lived off the land. We, they didn't give us any rations. We lived off the land. But we ate better in the, in the field than we did on the, in the campgrounds because we... Uh, 
Well, uh, Coon is hard to beat when he gets on the outskirts, you know, outside. Uh, he knows what to, he knows what to steal, he knows what to kill, and he knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. And he knows how to prepare it. And, and we all knew how to cook, and we had a cook in our outfit. We had goat, we had lamb, we shot wild boar, uh, javelinas at night, within the moonlight. We skinned them and we cooked them. The Mediterranean section that we were in in Algiers uh, was mostly all French. So the communication with the people there was very good. In fact, we used to go to, uh, when we'd go on leave in Algiers, uh, which was not too very often, maybe two, maybe two or three times we went. Uh, we wouldn't go into the Cosbar because they told us to stay away, you know, it was off limits. Yeah. And But we'd go to uh, 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 clubs of uh, uh, burlesque. We'd go to burlesque shows. And the people, the, the, the actors would sort of make fun of us because we were paratroopers. And we, they'd talk French and, and they, they didn't think we knew what we were talking, they were talking about, you know. But we'd understand some of it enough to get by to know what uh, they talk pretty fast. But uh, we'd get by anyway, and they'd make fun of us of the paratroopers, you know, and they'd say, little jokes, you know. You learn how to you laugh that away, you know. We could go to uh, the the communities and uh, drink all the wine we wanted, uh, get any any order anything that we. That was on the menus. Uh, I say menus. They, they told you what they had, and we understood what it was, you know, because they were small communities. They weren't large, and uh, but oh, the wine was plentiful, very, very plentiful, too plentiful. Following weeks of extensive training in the Atlas Mountains in Algiers, the commandos boarded a converted British medium bomber with several canisters of weapons and set out in the dark of night for a long flight to the drop zone in southern France. On August the 12th, 1944, O.G. Pegg parachuted into the mountainous region of southern Aude, near the French border with Spain. A week later, the Allies launched Operation Anvil Dragoon, the invasion of southern France. Pegg's week-long mission was to rendezvous with the French underground fighters, target German troop movements in strategic areas, and block off enemy escape routes by destroying strategic bridges and causeways. Once on the ground, the American paratroopers had to rely almost completely on the local knowledge and intelligence of their French counterparts. Language and effective communication were key elements to the success of these dangerous missions behind enemy lines. Both Roy and Claude were wounded during this mission, and they had to depend on the local French people for medical treatment and, most importantly, to protect them from being discovered by Nazi SS executioners lurking in the area. Both men attest that the French people saved their lives on more than one occasion. Life for a special forces team operating in a foreign land was dangerous and heavily dependent on their rugged, highly specialized training which they learned back in Washington, D.C. They showed us how to cut rails for trains, uh, blow up bridges, 
how to uh, uh, well how to attack a, a column uh, because it was a hit and run deal. What we learned, you see, it wasn't it wasn't like the the regular grunts that uh, had to stay in the foxhole or something. Uh, we were taught to hit and run. We hit and run, but we stayed in. You never stayed in the same section all the time. You, uh, we jumped into the uh, ladder, uh, the southern part of Ard, and and we worked our way up uh, up to Toulouse. Uh We did some work in uh, in Carcassonne. And, uh, I, I got pictures with some women I took in, in uh, <laughs> and I sent it to my wife. <laughs> But anyway, but that's the way we would uh, we were taught to hit a column and, and and then get away and then reorganize and go again, you know, and and in conjunction with the French underground because they gathered the information for us and then we prepared the attacks and we went to them. The what we jumped in with was the men jumped and the the, the material was dropped at the same time. And, well, they had the, the the underground was there. You see, you mustn't forget now. that we were with yeah, the underground, and they were there. And well, we wouldn't have jumped if they wouldn't have been there, because they would tell you that uh, there was no oh, armed forces in sight. Uh, the Bosch were nowhere around uh, to go ahead and jump. Everything was cleared, so they would gather everything. In fact, they gathered everything on the jump. Uh, our chutes and our containers and everything and threw that all into these wood-burning trucks. And then we jumped in with that equipment and covered ourselves with the chutes and, and rode on to where we was going to go into the mountains with them. They, well, they had a headquarters up in the mountains in the Pyrenees, uh, that's the, the northern part of the Pyrenees, that is. And uh, that's where we jumped. We jumped in Castle Nadari, France. The low altitude jump of below 500 feet into the mountains in the dark resulted in several injuries to the paratroopers. Roy suffered a severe back injury and had to be treated by the French people and taken up to the mountains to recover for a few days. And I stayed with a French family there. He was uh, the guard de Fortier. Uh, he's a forest ranger. They were very serious and they were very much against the German people, the occupation of forces, you see. They, they were people, uh, uh, well, they were like everyday people that you would meet, uh, uh, like our neighbors that we had when we grew up. Uh, they had, uh, they took me in, uh, in, into their home. They had uh, an upstairs where they lived. Downstairs was where the cattle and the cows and you know, or they'd milk their cows and make their butter and stuff. It was all downstairs, all underneath there. In other words, the, the, the dairy part was down below, and, and uh, but everything was spotless. It was clean. It was uh, well well taken care of. You know, they were clean people. They were very, very nice to me, uh, overly nice. The lady tried, uh, uh, the wife tried all kind of little uh, uh additional things to give me and to relieve the pain, you know. I went to a hospital in, I think it's Toulouse. I don't remember exactly what's the name of the town. Uh, I had a, a, a nurse there. Uh, 
she was the daughter of General Hera, and uh, she took care of me. And uh, uh, that night, when the first night I was there, uh, they shot some agents that were trying to get into the hospital to come in and get you and get me, yeah, because I was with the underground. You know, they had learned that I was there, and they, but uh, they took care of them. I mean, uh, I, I didn't know anything about it. She told me about that. So anyway, I, I stayed there two, three days, I guess, at the most, and then I got... We moved a lot, you know. We moved, as the whole group moved, we went to uh, different sections. Uh, and then we went to uh, Carcassonne. We had a, a, a little in engagement there, and uh, you know, we captured a few people, a few bosses, and brought them into the French people. Uh, I told this to my wife and, and, and my mother. I captured one that had, he must have been a gambler. He had a Beretta, which I regretted I never brought back home. And he had a shirt full of money. And uh, I took the money and I gave it to the French people. We, we only knew what we had to do. And we'd go on those missions. We'd get that, uh, we had one of these hand radios. And they would radio back and forth. And uh, the only people that knew what was really going on was the radio man and the, your commanding officer, you see. And all, they came back and they told you, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And that, that was it, you know. It was after, I don't know the length of time. I can't tell you how many days or how many weeks or what it was, but I remember this. When the invasion of southern France had commenced, we could hear the guns from Montpellier. We were just north of Montpellier at that time. And we could hear the guns very plainly. We, we knew something was happening. And we knew something was happening because we had heard on the radio, Les Sangliers is arrivé. In other words, the invasion has begun. When we dropped in France, I'm not sure the date, I used to know, but I forgot, two Frenchmen plus was waiting for us. Some kind of way, the army got in touch with these people. They call it, uh, uh, me, I used to call them a French a soldier, civilian soldier, but uh, they, was, uh, they used to help us out any way they could. They were civilian, and uh, they were waiting for us. And uh, they helped us gather all our belongings, baggage and all that, and they, I'll never forget this. They put us in a truck. By that time, it was daylight. They brought us to a little town, and that little town, they all knew we were going there. They passed the word. Uh, uh, what they call them, Marquis? The Marquis. The reason the Marquis, I learned that later. They used to help us, the Americans, uh, when we got there. Once we got in France, we didn't have to hunt for food. I'd say they went house to house and begged for food. I knew I was in with the special forces, oh yeah. And I knew that our job was to stop the Germans any kind of way we could, with dynamite, uh, anything. A convoy and all that. They got wounded, that's, that's how I got hurt. We heard from the Marquis that the Germans were going to pass 
under that bridge at night. And, well, me and Lieutenant Schwank and a couple of more, we got in a little truck and we went to examine the bridge. And as soon as we got there, here comes the Germans. The Germans seen us before we seen them. According to eyewitness reports, the ambush backfired when a column of 250 Germans began firing on the small band of commandos and their French comrades. Lieutenant Swank and Claude Galley laid down machine gun fire in an attempt to let the others flee. Both were hit multiple times by enemy bullets. Lieutenant Swank was killed and Claude was hit in the foot and the hand. Two other Maquis fighters were killed and others wounded. Claude was able to escape with the help of two Frenchmen who brought him to a safe house where he received treatment. They, they, them, two, them two monkeys, they saved my life from, from where I got wounded to the hospital to took care of me. When left the hospital, they left me there, and the nurse and doctor took care of me. And uh, this little girl used to come visit me every day. And after a couple of weeks, they moved me. And I want to know why they were moving. So the Germans were getting too close. So they brought me to another hospital. And I, all told, I was in about three different hospitals. Then finally, my group caught up with me. And two, them two monkeys that was with me all the time that I had met, they come to me one day to tell me that my group was at such a place and they wanted, they wanted them to bring me over there. Then I went and I met Roman Thor was in the hospital there. And we met again for the first time in a few weeks. Wow. From there, they worked my way to the American hospital. With their mission complete and France liberated, the two banged up Cajun GIs left from hospitals in Italy and boarded a ship for home. They made it back to their respective Bayou communities after the war and went about their separate ways. They did not see each other again until 60 years later, once they began receiving letters and emails from a veterans group in southern France. This group identified themselves as members of the former resistance fighters of the Marquis Jean Robert et Fatah, who fought alongside Operational Group Peg in August of 1944. The letters revealed that every year on August 17th, the remaining veterans from that Maquis Association and their families visited the gravesite of Lieutenant Swank to honor his sacrifice. A letter to Roy Ormontar from that group said, Our association has often met at the place where the Maquis Jean Robert et Fetat met with your group in August 1944. We have visited many times the drop zone where you placed your feet on French soil for the first time and in the gorges of Islet, where Lieutenant Swank lays according to his wishes. That chain of correspondence and this original oral history research project ultimately brought these two Cajun commandos, Roy Armentar and Claude Galley, back together for a memorable meeting as participants in a World War II roundtable program in Homa in 2005. I had the honor of speaking at this program alongside my good friend, Brigadier General Bob LeBlanc. To my knowledge, this was the first public event that featured the epic tale of the Cajuns of OSS. The video from that program can be found on my website. Will Terrio, the current president of the Regional Military Museum in Homa, was at the event that night. 20 years later, the museum 
has become a featured attraction for all things World War II and military-related in the region. The seeds for this amazing museum were planted during the heyday of the HOMA World War II Roundtable meetings. I was fortunate enough to have been a guest speaker at this famous roundtable many times over. I asked Will Terrio to join our program and tell the audience about this must-see attraction in southeast Louisiana. Hi, Jason. Thank you for inviting me to your show. It's been a while since we've seen each other. I am so happy that you invited me to be part of this program. I remember vividly the roundtable discussion we had concerning the Cajun OSS. That was very interesting, and I still have the video of that. Since that time, we've progressed into a full-fledged regional military museum. We're located at 1154 Barrow Street in Homa. Our prized artifact is a aircraft that was used by President Eisenhower when he was the president. When he was in it, it's Air it was Air Force One. People need to come and see this wonderful artifact. Our museum started in 2004 as a roundtable discussion group. This roundtable group was initiated by Mr. C.J. Chris, the founder of the museum. Our current museum will be hosting several major events in 2024 honoring all of our veterans. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. We've been at this program for a good while and have developed a loyal following, so we'd like to hear from you, the audience members. When time permits, please visit jasonterrio.com, click on the contact button, and send us a message. And we are pleased to announce that the long-awaited Frenchie book will be published this spring by UL Press. That book is 20 years in the making, my friends. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. The Frenchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura from the Center for Louisiana Studies. We'd like to thank the Regional Military Museum in Homa for sponsoring this episode.